I will work day in and day out, wake up and smell the coffee. I want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Luke McDougall, author of Marcia Williams, The Life and Times of Baroness Faulkner. Welcome to the podcast, Lynn. Hello. Good to be on your podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. Um, now, the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, what made you first want to write this book on Marcia? Well, it's probably quite a lot of reasons not to do with Marcia. In, I was married to a Labour MP called Austin Mitchell for a very long time, and for 37, 38 of those years, he was the MP for Grimsby. Uh, before that, he worked in television, and I think it was when he worked in television that he first got to know Harold Wilson, who was uh, obviously from the same sort of area as we lived in, because we, we lived most of our... When Austin wasn't in Grimsby, we lived in West Yorkshire, uh, where he came from. And um, so we got to know a lot of people like Joe Kagan, who was a local mill owner in Ireland near where I still live. And um, so Austin some, was a friend of Marcia's. And when Austin retired in 2015, we went to live in Yorkshire. That hadn't, of course, been the pattern uh, for, for, for 50 previous years in that uh, we both worked out of London. And he obviously had to spend quite a bit of time in Grimsby as well. But anyway, we went to our house in Yorkshire and uh, we, we talked a lot about what had gone by. Because when someone stops being an MP, it's a bit like the grandfather's clock. It stops short, never to go again. Suddenly, after a manic life, the telephone stops ringing overnight. Everything stops. In fact, I was much, much reminded of that in the diaries of Harold Wilson, when I, when I went to um, look at the Wilson files in, the, um, in uh, uh, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, I was very sad, really, because after he'd stopped being an MP, the entries in the diaries also kind of stopped. Marcia would fill in the diaries, and so some years you would get a couple of trips to the Silly Isles, so routine visits to the doctor and the dentist and perhaps an annual visit to Oxford to have dinner with Bob and Betty Maxwell. And it doesn't matter how important you are or how big you are in the political frame, that, that sort of happens to everyone. So you kind of count yourself lucky to uh, be able to look back. I, I think one of the best things about being an old person is that it does indeed give you time to reflect on how things work and to understand them a lot better. And we talk quite a bit about Marcia because I was always interested in how passionately misogynistic so many of the people around her had been. Mm. And so it was something that Austin and I were discussing quite a bit. And when the opportunity came up to do a biography. I was a bit nervous about it, but I thought, well, I'm going to be enormously helped by having Austin to guide me through the sort of political bits of it. So yes, it'd be a good thing to do. 
Well, of course, the sad outcome was it didn't work out like that because I hadn't really got very far with it at all. Um, I'd only got to doing my discovery at Leeds University about um, uh, about the papers of uh, Court, who had been Wilson's agent, and these papers were in Leeds University when uh, Austin was actually in uh, the infirmary just down the road, and I was sitting in the library, and he was in the infirmary. So that was the end of it, really. And obviously, after he died. Um, it took me quite a long time to make up my mind if I was going to go back to it. And I decided that I should. I'm glad I did because I've, uh, I've found it very, very, well, it, it, it makes more, much more clear to me how things were in the 60s and 70s and how they've changed now. And I think I wanted to say most of all about Marcia that she did make an I believe, a huge contribution to the Labour Party. And I'm incredibly sad that the Labour Party hasn't recognised this and, uh, and hasn't done anything to, to promote the important work she did for them. She is a figure that those of us who are in the Labour Party should be proud to recognise and should want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I just want to begin by um, asking about Marcia's early life in um, Northamptonshire. Could, could you give a, a, a bit of an overview as to what that life was like and, and possibly um, comment how you think it may have um, impacted her, her later career? Yes, it's hard to tell how it impacted her later career, but she was the daughter of a Northamptonshire builder and it's commonly thought by everyone that her mother was of the belief that um, she was actually... Possibly, and well, I think she went stronger than possibly. Her mother believed herself to be the illegitimate and illegitimate daughter of King Edward VII, um, who you and I probably didn't know too much about, but he was uh, pretty famous in Edwardian England for being known as Dirty Bertie, in that I think he had a great number of uh, female friends. Mm. Now, uh, so I did go into this quite closely and looked at some work that had been done by the Society of Genealogists. And it is true to say that the Falkander is an incredibly rare name and there was an, um, Marcia's mother was indeed illegitimate and it doesn't say on her birth certificate who her father was. But there was, the story goes, that a soldier by the name of Falkander, who I think ended up, living in, uh, well, north, in somewhere near Newcastle, uh, may have taken on the responsibility, although not on the birth certificate, to be, uh, to be the father of uh, Marcia's mother. So we don't know is the answer. But it's a kind of intriguing start to life, isn't it, to believe that you might be the uh, granddaughter of a past king. Anyway, her father, her mother, um, went... Northampton features incredibly strongly and um, her mother married her father as a builder and really for all his life was a successful builder. He started as a, as a worker in a brick factory and he ended up, he, he left quite a considerable amount of money in his will for those days and he was an uh, incredibly uh, family man with three children, Marcia, her sister and her brother Tony, Tony. They all did well at school and they went to university. 
Uh, Tony became a geologist and went to work in oil in the Middle East. Um, Marcia's elder sister, Peggy, um, had also done way at school. And um, she, at the water stage, when all three of them worked together in Downing Street. And um, I, I, I'd, I'd now like to turn to um, when she left Northamptonshire, when she went to um, Queen Mary College, University of London. What do you think that that experience was like for her going from um, Northamptonshire to London, studying at university? And what do you think, uh, you, you quote some of her um, political writings, some of the um, only political writings that were published under her own um, name prior to, to, to leaving Downing Street in the piece. What do you think that they say about her political beliefs at, at that time while she was at university? And, and do they give in any indication as to the kind of um, political operator that she would be later on? Well, I would kind of say not, actually. When she was at school at this, it was um, she was at a thing, something called Northampton Girls' School, which is still thriving today. I, I've been, obviously, a couple of times and had a look, and it's a terrifically good school, as you might imagine, for young women, but it's also terrifically expensive. I think today, if you were the parent of a Northampton girls' school girl, if you just had one daughter, you'd be parting out with something like 12000 a year for day girls. So uh, it's a considerable amount of money. Now, Marcy was obviously clever, and so was her sister, because they both got scholarships to Northampton girls. So they were bright and clever. And there I was incredibly uh, lucky, because one of the people that helped me with the book a lot was Marcia's school friend from the sixth form, uh, her friend Anne Caldwell. And um, I had she, I've spoken to her and been to see her many times during the writing of the book. And Anne, Anne's belief from the beginning, and I can see no reason why she would be wrong, was that Marcia had no political, particular political leanings when she was at school. In fact, Anne and Marcia spent a great deal of their time, at least twice a week, they went by bus into Northampton to go to the cinema. The cinema was their great love. And then when they got home from the cinema, always American films, they spent a lot of time writing to American actors, film stars, pop singers, if you like, to, in the hope that they could get autographs for their autograph collection. And uh, they, that, that occupied them enormously when they weren't doing, working hard at their schoolwork. So there was no real suggestion in anything I could find that she had any particular political leanings to the left. However, others have said that her, one of the teachers at Northampton High School for Girls at the time was a woman called Janet Margeson, whose father was the conservative chief whip, and he had a reputation for being um, uh, very, shall we say, well, what I'd call bossy and assertive. He, he was regarded as a great chief whip because he had a tight control on what were done in his party. Now, it's suggested that Margeson... Miss Margeson was a teacher of Marcia's and that she may well have encouraged her towards thinking about politics. But, but if she did, I mean, how? Was Miss Margeson secretly against, was, was Margeson a secret left winger who was in 
encouraging her students to be left-wingers also because I, I, wouldn't, I can't really connect it up because her father was the very opposite. So again, there's, no, there's nothing to tell me about that, but that's the only political collection that was suggested at school. What Anne Caldwell says, she does remember that she got, she, Anne, became pretty excited about naval officers um, and had an uncle who was in the Navy and got to know lots of young men who were naval officers. And that Marcia did remark about that. Well, you're bound to have a different life from me. I'm more likely, she said, to be one of those girls who are apparently quite sort of well-known at the time. One of those girls who work on coal barges carrying coal from the Midlands down to the south of Britain. So uh, I'm, well, I'm guessing that there was, she did sort of think of herself as not being, of, of being a working girl, shall we say, mm -hmm. rather, than, uh, rather than someone who was going to live a middle-class life. Obviously, I don't need to tell you that Britain was much more hierarch hierarchical then than it is now, and there were less opportunities, I think, for uh, ordinary working-class people to... Uh, to get on, but then you couldn't call anyone who went to a girls' private school an ordinary working-class girl. So uh, difficult to make any honest assessment before she went to Queen Mary. I was at Queen Mary last night because I had my book launch there, and it was very exciting, actually, because we had big posters of Marcia up around the place. And Queen Mary, are, you know, obviously, as you would be, very proud of, uh, of Marcia and her contribution and... Uh, we, it was well attended, and uh, people people seemed very interested indeed. And in, uh, in, uh, in, but again, there's very you know I was lucky to actually find some extracts from what she did uh, when she was at Queen Mary uh, in the in the magazine Cub, which is the student magazine. Um, she, I suppose you could say, she was a, a determined and forthright. We only really begin to know about her political leanings. The big important thing, as far as I can see, is when she left the university, she then went to a college and learned shorthand typing, which if you're female and it was 1950s, then of course you had to learn shorthand typing because uh, if you were getting going to get on in the world, the only way you could do that was be by being an assistant to, to some man. It was still very rare. There were very few women at the top of the civil service. Married women had to leave the civil service when on marriage. Um, married women were or women weren't allowed in the foreign civil service for quite some years to come. So uh, one wouldn't have suggested that a political career was anything you know that anyone would want. However, Marcia got a job, the only job she ever had, apart from working with Harold Wilson, in the head office of the Labour Party as one of a group of, shall we say, secretary, shorthand typists, who, uh, who worked in head office. And the night that she met Harold was, I think, very important for both of them. And it also says something about, uh, well, a relationship that she'd already begun to have with Harold, but Harold didn't know about it. She arrived at Labour Party head office. She quickly saw that the Labour Party of Gateskill, Roy Jenkins, Anthony Crossland, all been at Oxford together, all middle-class Oxford men with definite views of where Labour was going and where Labour was placed on the spectrum. And that was definitely firmly 
to the right of centre. Marcia appears, well, she tells the story herself. She arrived in central office and she was worried. At, well, sounds like a toy party, but she arrived at Labour Party headquarters and she, uh, she realised straight away and didn't like where the Labour Party had positioned itself. Now, you've got to remember, she was a young woman of 21, 22, and she seemed to decide when she arrived that the Labour Party was in the wrong place. So she had a look around, and she was incredibly impressed by Harold Wilson, who was at this time doing a sort of national tour of Britain, visiting local constituency parties, and um, uh, trying, to, trying to build up a build up a good structure to show you where Labour was going in different parts of the country uh, for what would happen in the next election. And he did, he did an amazing job. He was meticulous and he was a hard-working academic. Marcier appears to have decided that he was the most likely candidate to be the next leader of the Labour Party, but she didn't like at all the way head office viewed him. So she decided... And she admits this, she admitted this in her book, uh, and she admitted in an interview that she did with Austin Mitchell, that um, she uh, wrote anonymously to Harold Wilson to tell him that he should be aware that they didn't like him much in head office at the Labour Party and that they were actually out to make sure that the Labour Party stayed firmly on the right. Now, that, that's unusual, isn't it? You don't... Mm. You, expect to find many women doing that. But so, of course, he didn't know who was sending these letters. So then on the night of the, uh, the uh, let me see, three, four, five, six, yes, the third, that's the third or the fourth month, that'd be April, 1956, Harold and Marcia met. Because in, in that month, the um, Russian, the heads of uh, the Russian government mm -hmm. had been on a, visit to Britain. There was Khrushchev, there was Bulganan, and a whole raft of supporters. Now, the, the Labour Party, obviously, being the opposition, hadn't had much to do with that, mm. but um, they, uh, they were invited for one evening to spend time in the House of Commons dining room with uh, the Labour Party leaders, and it's all the people I've already mentioned, and, of course, Harold Wilson was there. And... Um, uh, Gates School was going to give a speech later in the evening. Much drink was taken, and people like George Brown, who was at that stage deputy to uh, Gates School, I think, uh, was particularly had an excellent reputation as an imbiber. And the evening became, shall we say, quite argumentative with things like uh, George Brown, uh, Khrushchev's son was with him, and obviously he was on a separate table. And I think George Brown annoyed everyone in, in the Russian party by saying to uh, Khrushchev's son, do you always do everything your dad tells you to do? And, and sort of inflammatory remarks like that. Anyway, they, the evening developed rapidly into a, into a giant sort of row. The two women who'd been organising the event were Marcia and another woman from Labour head office. And um, just be because there were a couple of empty seats before the dinner began, the uh, Secretary-General had said to them, go on, girls, and I mean, he would definitely have said girls because that was the sort of thing that people said in those days, go, well, girls, sit down and take shorthand notes of the meeting and um, that they'll, they'll be useful to have afterwards. 
Well, Marcia herself describes this was the first time she met Howard Wilson. He was sitting very near her, and she said he was wonderful to her that night because she was so nervous, her hands were shaking when she was trying to write down shorthand notes of the great rows that were going on. And it, it wasn't just a British thing. It was in newspapers. I've checked it myself. There were write-ups about the appalling behavior of the Labour, some of the Labour people and the rows that took place in newspapers across the world uh, after it happened. And uh, the CIA made reports on it, all sorts. Mm. Anyway, um, that night... Um, I then we then have another source that I uh, I acquired a guy called um, Alt had had the front page in the Sun newspaper in the in, in the seventies for an article about sensational article saying that Howard Wilson amongst all the other things he'd done and allowed Marcia to um allowed allowed Marcia to see secret papers that she shouldn't have been seeing um, because she wasn't authorised to do so. Mm. It, uh, you'd have to try and imagine it was uh, just like an everyday scene in Downing Street in uh, 2023 from what we were hearing yesterday. <laughs> and um, caught, well, well, I tried to find this book that this was supposed to be an extract on, of course it didn't exist. So I asked... Um, People are asked around, and people said, oh, well, it was pretty common, that sort of behavior, that people often sold an idea and then never went on to complete it. And that was exactly what had happened with Corn. But when he died in the 80s, his wife had sold his papers to Leeds University, I thought, some small sum of money, like 80 quid or something. But the, the point was that she made it sound much more exciting because she said that uh, they weren't to be, they had to abide by the 30-year rule and no one was to open them for 30 years. So mm. it, no one had opened them, but, it, but I was um, motivated to do so. And it was very interesting because Corn had written the sort of story I've told you about, which is pretty accurate, about that night. But he'd also written all about when Marcia and Harold first met. And he suggested that... Uh, they did indeed meet that night, just as Marcia had said, and that Harold offered Marcia a lift home. And he, I quote from him exactly, he said, and then for the next several years they had uh, a passionate affair. And um, he described how they were nervous because, of course, Marcia was, by the, I probably, I mean, it's hard, given that I'm at the moment sort of regurgitating the whole book for you. Mm -hmm. I sort of told you that uh, at this stage, Marcia was married because she'd married, um, amusingly, uh, Williams was the uh, head person in the Met Queen Mary Conservative Club, mm -hmm. uh, and she was the head person in the Labour Club, and they had married fairly recently. Anyway... Corn said that um, Marcia and Harold were incredibly nervous about the fact that they were out very late, and they made an arrangement that at the um, Labour Party head office meeting the next morning, they would send a message, Marcia would send a message to Harold about whether Mr Williams had been angry about her late arrival home by putting um, sugar in the saucer of, uh, of her cup of tea. Uh, history does not recall whether she did this or not, but uh, 
Anyway, it was the beginning. It was certainly the beginning of a lifelong relationship. For my two Bogsworths, um, I mean, Kant believed passionately that they had a relationship. I think it's Im almost impossible to think that they didn't because they were both in their ways, you know, people of their time. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, but they, they were enormously attracted to one another politically. It was, I think I, I would look at my own life, it sort of helped me a bit to understand this. I think Howard was a very organized person and people used to joke actually when, when he'd been a university lecturer before all this, that he kept everything in neat parcels. He, and, and Mary colluded with us really because she mm. always, she wasn't interested in politics and she really wanted their life at home to be very separate from what went on at Westminster. Um, in fact, she didn't really like political argy-bargy. So I think the relationship, whatever it was, the relationship between Marcia and Howard, I mean, what I wouldn't doubt is that they were enormously attracted to one another and spent really the rest of their lives, the rest of their working lives together. She was there right, uh, right by Mary's side on the day that they buried Harold Wilson. She faithfully... After, uh, uh, after he'd be stopped being a politician, she faithfully still went in, you know, and helped him. They also lived where I did now in Ashley Gardens, and I used to see Harold for many years. You would see him standing, uh, staring out the window of the first floor with his uh, look, looking out across towards Westminster Cathedral and down Victoria Street. But she used to come here to work with him. I didn't see that. Austin certainly did because he, mm. uh, he knew her. Anyway, um, Kant writes that that relationship became, uh, well, he suggests that Marcia, there was a lot of talking, and other people have backed this up. There was a lot of talking during the 50s um, about Marcia and Harold arriving every day in the in the because they worked in the mornings, um, he had a job outside, because we've got to remember, it's important to remember, that there was no short money, there was no, um, there was no visible means of support. MPs earned a tiny amount of money. They didn't even get their fares paid to their constituency. Mm. I, I mean, I went, just a couple of weeks ago, I went to Dundee, and when I was in Dundee, someone was telling me that... Uh, Winston Churchill was the MP for Dundee for 14 years, and in those 14 years, he managed to get to Dundee four times. <laughs> Look, I want you to know it was a very different, just back, you know, even 50 years ago, it was a very different kind of person became an MP, and it was a very different way that people ran it. And people like Tony Crossland, who was some... Um, uh, the MP before Austin and Grimsby, well, it quickly became obvious to me when we arrived in Grimsby because people told me that Tony was very well organised. He came to Grimsby twice a month on a Saturday and he would have um, an advice surgery in the morning and he would then spend the afternoon at uh, Grimsby Town home match and then he would do it, hop on the train and be back in London or in his Banbury home in time for his evening meal. Mm. Now, that's, that was civilised, you see. Now, 
that's terribly different from what people want now. Austin would be the change generation, I suppose, when we were moving between those. Mill and Neon uh, burst a gasket telling everybody how she was born in the Grimsby Maternity Hospital. Uh, you know, the, because nowadays the connection between the MP and every, preferably, if you can be, being born in a constituency is very important. That certainly wasn't sort of going on in the days of uh, Marcia and Harold. Is it? So, um, and anyway, their relationship was very close and people noticed about Westminster. And Court gives a description, which I have put in the book, uh, about how Marcia put on a lot of weight. Uh, they ate dinner together every night in the, uh, the dining room. And that a woman one night said to Marcy, when's it due? Marcia was profoundly upset by this and stormed out, apparently, but and wasn't seen for a couple of months, during which time she'd lost weight. I, I can see how a court sort of struggling to write all this, but um, mm. I, I comment not on it. It's, I, I mean, I think lots of people would back it up because that sort of story was doing the rounds at the time, but nobody had any proof. Anyway... Mm. Mm -hmm. My own feeling on the subject, for what it's worth, is that, yes, they probably did have a sexual relationship, but only for a short time, because I think they both discovered that wasn't really what they were interested in. Both of them had become passionate about changing the government in Britain, getting a Labour government, and, of course, there was no suggestion until quite near the time that it happened that gay school was going to die. So, I mean, we, what they were first of all doing, Harold and Marcy, was progressing Harold's role and trying to improve Harold's importance. He became the shadow chancellor uh, in in the Labour Party. So that's the that's the area of great debate. What happened during those years? But whatever it was that happened, it cemented their relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and uh, one of the things that I think really shows, uh, you mentioned it in the book, um, the importance of that relationship and the importance of Marcia um, to, to, to Harold Wilson's career is just before the um, election in 1964, when Marcia was flipping through the Radio Times and noticed that Steptoe and Son would be going out an hour, an hour before the polls closed. And she suggested to, to, to Harold Wilson to call the then Director General of the BBC to ask him to, to move it because of its impact on turnout. I mean, what do you think that shows about their relationship, uh, Marcy's political ability, but also how politics has changed since the 1960s? Because you can't quite imagine the leader of the opposition ringing the Director General of the BBC and asking for a, a, a popular TV programme to be moved because of the impact it might have on, on turnout now. Uh, I think everybody likes that story. Well, first of all, it shows that Marcia could think outside the box. I think so much of what happens at Westminster, again, has been, as has been dis discovered from these um, the, the amazing hearings the last few days, is, it, is it, everyone's so locked in to what they're doing inside Number 10 or inside Labour headquarters or whatever that they don't realise how they might be perceived from the outside world. Uh, Marcia wasn't like that. She was able to, and all through her life, I think, to relate incredibly well to what was going on in the real world 
I mean, you know, because you live in Yorkshire, and I know, because I live in Yorkshire, that there are few things more appalling than the enormous gap between the North and the South now. I think it's worse than it's ever been. And uh, you only need to get the train down to London and you're shocked by the different way people live. I how anyone can afford to go to Pret-a-Manger in London to buy a sandwich for their lunch is utterly beyond me. Mm. So, but Marcia had a skill and a talent that, to my money, has never been better. She could, she related herself to what was going on in the real world. And I thought it showed, obviously, it was the right thing to do. Hugh Carlton Green answered the phone to Harold and did what he asked and... Um, Yes, very clever behaviour. And that, you know, Marcia at that early stage was quite a lot of people praised. Uh, even Roy Jenkins, who later on, when it got to the Lavender List, said that, you know, he was upset and thought that Harold's reputation had been ruined by giving uh, peerages to people who wouldn't get them, wouldn't normally get them. I think that's rubbish, actually. I think that... Uh, when I looked into the things about so many of the things, when you look into them now, are our balls of fluff, really, because uh, peerages have been very much the same pattern, Labour and Conservative, right from the beginning. They've been given to people who gave enormous contributions, usually financially, to the parties they supported. Mm -hmm. And I'd just like to go back to um, uh, just before the 1964 election when um, Harold Wilson was standing to be leader of the Labour Party because Marcy was very much involved in ensuring that he, he managed to get the leadership. What kind of role... Let's be honest, she was the only person involved. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, she was she the only person. about how the two of them, month after month, uh, went on... Well... But Barbara Castle, who was on the left with Harold, said she'd never fallen out with Marcia and she always quite appreciated her, at what she'd done. Now, Mar that's the time when Marcia played the biggest part, was then and in that first 1964 election. Because, you know, the, they just didn't even get that much help. God knows what Labour head office were doing. Mm. Presumably, uh supporting people in their constituencies, one hopes. But uh, what what Harold and Marcia doing, were doing was, I mean, supported by outsiders like Joe Kagan and um, other people who'd come, other clever people who'd come from Eastern Europe after the Second World War, uh, because you had to. You can't, even then you couldn't do things, you, you probably wouldn't have been able to buy a Pret-a-Manger teaspoon of sugar for your saucer. <laughs> Uh, but because uh, there was just no money available. I can remember even um, when Austin became an MP, the salary, he'd been earning 20000 a year, which seemed a lot to me, at Yorkshire Television, and he went to be earning 3000 a year as an MP overnight. Mm. Now, that's what you call public service, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not like that, I don't think, anymore. And it's important, an important part of this book is, I think, the fact that, you know, things were bad for women then and particularly bad for Marcy. And although 
the things that happened later when I will claim that she became a drug, drug addict after the pressure of having two illegitimate children while working in Downing Street and the pressure of keeping that a secret. Those pressures were intolerable, really. And she'd done very well. I mean, the, the arrival of her main... Um, I was going to say the tractor, but I meant, you know what I mean, the yeah. person who was uh, against her, Joe Hayne, he didn't actually arrive in Downing Street until just before Labour lost the 1970 election. And even he, in the beginning, thought Marcia was a talented politician who was doing a great job. It was only after, I mean, he, he, he had no idea that she'd had two children. Mm. He says... When, when I asked him, as I did several times, how, how could this be if you were in meetings with her every day, et cetera, how could you not notice that she was pregnant? And he, he was very straight about it. He said she wore her coat and she always arrived early at meetings and uh, was sat down. Well, that's rubbish. I mean, uh, no woman would fall for that. And I, I mean, you, you, you comment on, on Joe Haynes obviously being a, a, a detractor of hers. And, and there were certainly by the time that both she and Harold um, left Downing Street, quite a, quite a few detractors. What do you think was at the root of the, the, the change in how people perceived Marcia from when um, Harold and, and, and she first entered Downing Street to when they eventually left um, finally in 1976. What, what was the, the main cause, do you think, in, in, in the shift in people's opinion? There were lots of different causes for different groups. I mean, the first key cause when arriving in Downing Street was how the civil servants have, up until then, been the only people in Downing Street. Um, they were there to run the government, to aid the Prime Minister, to do everything, you know, that traditionally civil servants have done over the centuries for for British governments. Marcia wanted something different. She wanted a political office in Downing Street because she argued, and we would all think rightly today, she argued that there were two jobs that the Prime Minister had to do. Yes, he had to run the government, but at the same time he had a political party that he was had behind him, and he had to run that party, had to run those MPs, and he had to... He had to have relationships with people in the constituents who, who were their, his, own, his own constituents. That was the change. Now, the civil servants, from the moment she arrived, did not want Marcia there. And misogyny was an important part of that. They, uh, they, just, they just weren't women in dining I mean, no. there were wives, of course, and... Uh, as we've seen, even to this day, wives can easily put, be put down and disposed of. I, I noticed that uh, Simon Case talked about Carrie in that glowing terms that, well, mm. what, what, will get, what will you be doing? Well, whatever Carrie wants, I suppose. So it's kind of traditional to blame women. Mm. But I'm saying that we shouldn't blame Marcia because she was a political operator and she did very, very well in those 60s governments. We, we all agree, there's no disagreement about the fact that Wilson did well as well. He passed lots of laws that we're grateful to have now. He changed, he changed the world for women, he changed the world for gay people. That, you know, that this was a reforming government, I would venture as a non-politician to say. Uh, but that doesn't excuse or the, the sort of profound dislike. 
So the civil servants didn't want her there and they did everything they could to get rid of her. That was thing number one. My next door neighbour, Robin, who uh, Lord Butler, who I interviewed in for the book, said she was a complete nuisance. She took no interest whatsoever in what he wanted or what any other junior civil servant wanted. She put her needs and wishes first and, you know, it's fair enough. Uh, so all that made her unpopular with civil servants. What made her unpopular with people like Joe Haynes is I think they felt that because Harold listened to everything she said and was prepared to, you know, and they didn't like the way she treated him, they felt that she had some hold over him, which made him have to listen to her. Um, they, they had a they had like an entrenched view, really, of how a prime minister should behave. And uh, they felt that Marcia had too much power and it was stopping them getting close to Harold. So that's, I think, what problems were. And they all got much worse because Marcia obviously had to think uh, about what was going to happen to her. Because don't forget, Harold had another life. Harold, like many men, could go home, shut the door and go home at the end of the day. And he had a wife and family of whom he was proud and he was obviously happy with his wife. And Marcia had nobody. She started having a series of fairly disastrous affairs with people who were around Downing Street and uh, didn't work. And then, um, again, it'll probably be your favourite story as it was mine. In those days, there wasn't a gate at the end of Downing Street and... Uh, um, Guy arrived to see Harold Wilson one evening and noticed that um, the car belonging to uh, the, who, the man who was at that stage the uh, political editor of the Daily Mail was sitting outside the door of number 10 and he peered in the window as he went past and saw to his unique embarrassment that in the car was Walter Terry, the political editor of the Daily Express, and wrapped in his arms was Marcia Williams. So this guy hurries on inside, and not but just 10 minutes later, who walks into the Prime Minister's room very cheerfully, but Walter Terry and Marcia, and Walter offers to get drinks all round. So uh, it was, uh, it was um, she, she had unpredictable relationships. She was obviously, well, Harold Wilson explained to Joe Haynes that she was actually in love with uh, Walter Terry, I, the situation went on for, well, quite a while because she had two babies um, within 10 months of one another. And uh, this all had to be kept absolutely secret because, first of all, everyone, if it had got out, everyone would have no doubt believed that the father of those babies was the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably the main reason why it couldn't get out. Secondly... The situation was really diff different with newspapers then because, of course, the proprietors could be influenced to change their stories or control their journalists. And um, the Prime Minister's uh, lawyer, Lord Good oh, well, he was called Ar he was Arnold Goodman then, worked hard to keep stories about Marcia out of the press. And um, that's when I give a, a bit of a hero ground, really, to another huge change which has taken place in our society, which was the arrival on the scene of Private Eye. Because mm. Private Eye were doing something that the hierarchical structure of Britain hadn't had before. That no longer could people at the top 
um, cover up what was going on. And Private Eye revealed that the situation with Marcia and the boys, and people like Joe Haynes had worked for some months for Harold Wilson without even knowing that Marcia had these two children. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So I want you to think that sort of stress on Marcia, it was enormously stressful. And imagine if every day you had to be frightened that someone would find out you had kids, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's, that's, that's how things were. So because it had been a great strain in the 60s with two elections, etc., Marcia had started taking, uh, I think you'd call them blue bombers, uh, amphetamines. Mm -hmm. yeah. She could buy, I think, under the counter for about one and six or something. Um, and she was taking these in great quantities because they helped her stay awake at night. She was working incredibly long days, you know. Once Harold got into Downing Street, he then brought with him this friend of his who was his uh, guy I played golf with on Saturdays in Hampstead Garden Suburb. And um, he, uh, he, he's called Joe Stone. He was a local doctor in Hendon. And he immediately became worried about Marcia because, like everyone else, he didn't like the idea of Harold being bossed around by Marcia. And he was very nervous that Marcia was loud, bossy, and dominant. Mm. And he, um, he started giving her something that was incredibly common in the 60s and 70s. He gave her benzodiazepines. They were, um, if you remember, you probably won't remember, but Perhaps you you might have heard a Rolling Stones song. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Doctor, please, some more of these. And behind the door, she took four more. Right. Mm -hmm. Marcia started wearing a vial around her neck, uh, like in some Shakespeare play, but it, in which she kept her drugs. Now, you don't have to believe me about this. This is well documented. Uh, in fact, this is where Lord Donoghue comes into his own because when he arrived, along with Joe Haynes, he wrote a, a really great diary day after day. And day after day, he talked about Marcia's drug-taking habits, how sometimes she would take great handfuls of uh, drugs out of the vial around her neck and, and pop them because she was getting so stressed. And I describe in the book the, um, some of the characteristics that go with that kind of stress. And I think, you know, I think we have to realise that a lot of the things that are said about Marcia's behavior during the 70s, uh, during opposition and during what happened in that last period of Wilson government, 74 uh, to 76, uh, would be related to her drug taking, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I think looking at the, the, the 76 period, of course, we can't not discuss, you, you mentioned it earlier, the Lavender List. Why do you think that that list made such um, an impact? And why do you think that there was such vitriol ascribed to Marcia, even though it was Harold's own list, his, his, um, his resignation also? Okay, you have to divide it into two sections, which was what happened at the time the list was published in 76. Yeah. Um, We've seen already that Wilson was perfectly willing to use peerages to uh, 
cock a snoop at people who criticized him. And the best example of this is the fact that uh, the minute he gave, he got fed up with the way Marcia was being treated. Her, her brother, there was a scandal about her brother running um, uh, slag heaps, uh, collecting the slag off uh, the, the, these old mining heaps in uh, the north of England near Wigan and selling it to act as underlay for the M62 motorway, which was then being built. In fact, it was proved conclusively that, that he'd done nothing wrong and the fact that he had his sister's names on the company that he was working for, that, he, you know, that he'd set up, mm -hmm. none of this was wrong. And Harold got up and defended the whole family in the House of Commons. And um, after that, he just couldn't bear it. He made Marcia on her own. He made Marcia appear. And that was why he made her appear, to, to cock a snook at those who tried to say she was part of a family that were doing illegal things. They were not. And nothing, uh, they didn't really in the end make a great deal of money at all. And uh, uh, Wilson wasn't having it. So uh, so that, that, that started it. But with, with the lavender list, I can find nothing exceptional. Uh, see, people now say things to you that would, would just look silly in this day. Mm -hmm. I said to Joe, well, you know, who shouldn't have had peerages from that list? And he mentioned David Frost. He said, well, the one person we succeeded not giving a peerage to, David Frost. So I said, well, what would be wrong with giving David Frost? He said, well, he was in television. <laughs> now, that's the old-fashioned attitude of the people back then, just after the war, who were a cut above television, if you like. Television was something, and particularly ITV, which was something the working class watched, you know. So that was rubbish. And I, I think that looking back from this distance at what peerages have been given to me, it's very hard to say that uh, anything was... any. It's undoubtedly true that Marcia and Harold will have chatted it over together. Why would they suddenly change the habits of a lifetime? Yeah. And as she said, and, and he said too, she was just writing down, they were walking along together, and uh, she wrote down what she said. But it, it caught the imagination of people, I think, mainly because it was called a lavender list. That's what was so mysterious about it. And I, I mean, I looked back through the peerages, uh, right back, you know, Lloyd George, etc. There's nothing, I'm, most of the people who Lord Weidenfeld, uh, for example, were uh, people who'd given enormous support to a Labour Party that wouldn't have succeeded otherwise because uh, that, that sort of money wasn't available until Harold Wilson changed the rules. That sort of money wasn't available um, to governments or to oppositions. So uh, that's, I think, that first bite of uh, what happened with peerages could be safely disregarded. And in fact, nobody was ever sued over it. What, what happened the second time, probably more interesting actually, the second time was because Joe Haynes, who presumably retired by 2002, 2003, wrote a book about Marcia. And what he said in this book that he put out then uh, was that he hadn't been actually honest about everything before. So he proceeded to go back over his years at Downing Street and 
and say that Marcia had been a really bad and wicked woman and he hadn't thought it was fair while people were still alive because by the time he wrote the second book, people like um, uh, Lord Stone had died. Uh, and so this brought the whole story up again for another bite of the cherry at the beginning of the 21st century. And the BBC uh, thought, great, why don't we, this is a, a bit like you would do with Netflix today, why don't we make a, a film about this? Mm. See, a, a sort of drama documentary. But drama documentaries are rather new then. So they did. And they hired Francis Ween, who was the deputy and is the deputy editor of Private Eye, to write it. And I'm told by Francis, and I'm sure he's right, that the BBC lawyers were entirely happy with everything. You know, not a problem. Mm -hmm. So um, the story was duly filmed, and Joe was interviewed and said, continued to say things about Marcia. And the day after it went out, uh, um, well, Marcia sued the BBC, and nobody was particularly worried about that, thinking, well, you know, that, you know why would she? It's been exactly. But the BBC appeared to be terrified and they immediately listened to what Marcia had to say and tried to desperately tried to avoid going to court with the result that they paid her 70,000 to keep quiet. And uh, she was, not only did she get 70,000, but they promised never to show the lavender list again. So that, that's why the lavender list is the part about Marcia uh, that has stayed on in people's minds. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast, Linda. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. See, but I can read my whole book for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I do have one final question for you, though. Um, given that um, uh, now Marcy has, has sadly passed away, sadly passed away in 2019. How do you think she would like to be remembered, and and how do you hope? this book will make people remember her, future generations reconsider her, her impact on the Labour Party? Well, I would regard it as a success if the Labour Party, for a start, reconsidered Marcia's role and that acknowledged what a great contribution she'd made because the Labour Party are pretty famous for whining on about, why have we never had a woman leader? Well... The answer may be because you're not very good at the way you handle women and the things they've done for you. Mm. And I, so I would urge the Labour Party to look at to look at Marcia again. But secondly, I'm I'm keen on women's history, and most women are now. And God, we've got a long way to go to start telling the stories of uh, of women and and how they've contributed. Uh, it, it, this is just happening at a time when we're shocked to see misogyny in Downing Street and things all over again. Women have never had a fair crack of the whip simply because it's fine for guys to go out to work, it's fine for women to go out to work, but nobody's really cracked it yet as to who does all the housework and who looks after the kids. Because however many times I might fleetingly see a male pushing a trolley in a supermarket, it's mainly women who take up all that extra part of family life. And uh, it's an enormous responsibility on women. And until we can somehow give women, women the respect they deserve for their huge contribution, 
Uh, for instance, just a tiny thing, but in the Labour Party, women too often are out in the kitchen with their pinnies on, washing the cups. And occasionally they come out to clap when they get a new MP or somebody retires or something like that. That's, that's the solid role that women had been performing, keeping the Labour Party going. You know, wake up, Labour Party, <laughs> I say, wake up. Yeah. Well, I completely agree with that sentiment, Linda. Thank you once again um, for taking the time to speak to me. If people would like to buy a copy of the book, where would you advise people go to, to get a copy? Their local bookshop, I think, is the answer. Mm-hmm. If you've got yeah. if lucky enough to have a local bookshop, treasure it. Uh, again, I completely agree with that, and I hope people will go out and go to their local bookshops and, and, and buy this book because it is a, a fantastic book. Thank you once That's again really for speaking with Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.